You're listening to Aerial View Worldwide on the Internet. What kind of radio show is this? I heard his voice on tape and it really put the hook in me. I broadcast many, many times. On both the white pole and the home schools. Judgment is upon us, then. Hi, I was wondering if this was the same Chris T who does um, the radio show. Because um, if it is, I think your show is really great. Um, but if it isn't, um, I'm sorry to have bothered you. Hey, you today. 
Hey, it's me, Chris T, here on the houndnyc.com. Back live. Where you can hear the hound howl every Sunday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and then followed by crashing the party. Do a chop shop of the year with Mark and Miriam at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Miriam, not long ago, launched Kicksville Radio as well, and now Crashing the Party is heard wall-to-wall and rooftop-tall, as they say. So uh, seek it out wherever you get your online radio. And don't forget, we're always here for you as well at thehoundnyc.com. It's been a while since I've done a live show. You know how it is, life intrudes. And uh, it's been difficult on Fridays, been busy on Fridays. And so what I've been doing is digitizing aerial view archive shows from way back when and putting those up and actually turning those into podcasts as well so you could always hear those. And along with replaying this aerial view 2.0, I'm not really sure what to call it, but ever since it's been on, TheHoundNYC.com, namely 2018 is when we started. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a lovely ride. It's been an interesting ride, I'll say that. I, I still enjoy doing this. If I didn't enjoy doing this, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you and telling you all about my special guest tonight, who uh, has been guest on this show more often, I think, than anybody else, perhaps except for Keith Hartel. They kind of go neck and neck. Ken Katkin who uh, I've known many, many years, since the early 90s, I believe. And uh, a trip we took uh, out together to Chicago when he was moving out there. But Ken was a fixture, as was I, at WFMU. But now he's a professor of constitutional law at Salmon P. Chase School of Law at Northern Kentucky University. And he is the uh, custodian and main maintenance person over there at Trash Flow Radio at WAIFFM in uh, Cincinnati. And uh, he can be heard online. You're going to hear the show. I'll have uh, Ken tell you when, and then you can listen. It's Saturdays, all right? I'm not going to keep you in suspense, but it's it's Saturdays. And uh, he'll join me and tell us all about his particular situation with a car. But first, I'm going to tell you about my situation with a car, which prompted my first small claims case since uh, 2007, when I moved out of my apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey, that I'd lived in for over 12 years, and my landlord refused to return my security deposit. And I had to take him to court, and I prevailed. 
And in Hoboken at the time, Hudson County, if you prevailed, the landlord had to pay you double your security deposit. So I not only prevailed, I doubly prevailed, and that was pretty cool. But uh, this recent case was one that was brought on by my own stupidity. So um, back on September 27th, which was a Tuesday, uh, somewhere around 4 p.m. in the afternoon, I found a 1983 Mercedes 300 TD station wagon for sale on Facebook Marketplace. And I had been looking for one for a while because... You may or may not know, I had a store up in Saugerties, New York, called That Cave, which I closed right around this time last year, after my execrable cousin, in a fit of jealousy, uh, threw me out, essentially. But what I've been doing since then is carting all the remaining store stock to these various uh, fairs. I did the uh, punk rock flea market in Asbury Park a couple of times. I did the Strange Exchange in Montclair. I've done the Rot Fest down in Highland Park. And believe me, it's not easy cramming a bunch of old shit into a 1994 Mercedes sedan, which is what I own now. So I got this bright idea that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself something that can hold more crap. And I can haul stuff in. And I thought about a pickup truck. Then I thought about a Honda Element. And I landed on another vintage Mercedes. And really for the dumbest of reasons. Because I have a mechanic already. And I didn't feel like going out and finding another one. And my mechanic worked on my 1983 Mercedes diesel. And I figured he'd work on this one as well. A 1983 Mercedes diesel very much like the car I had the same color, basically, this dark blue. And the price just seemed too good to be true. $4,500, and these things were routinely going for twice that. I know because I've been following the auctions on eBay for a while. I've been following any sales on Facebook Marketplace. But I messaged this person right away. I didn't receive a response. I went online. I looked up his name in the town where he supposedly lived. I found some phone numbers. I called him. I asked him some questions about the car. I told him I was definitely interested in a car. And he told me he had a lot of other interests as well. He had people contacting him, contacting him constantly since he put the car online and I needed to get there right away. And I said, there's just no way. I mean, I can't get there tomorrow. I, I don't remember why. But instead, I said, what if I send you some money? I'll, I'll just send you a partial payment for the car because I want the car. And I PayPal'd him $1,000. And this is where I fucked myself over. Instead of using what they call goods and services on PayPal, I used friends and family. Now, if I had used goods and services, what happened subsequently would have never happened. Now, what happened is the following day, I'm out driving, doing errands. The guy calls me, the seller calls me to let me know that it's not a 1983, it's a 1984. I said, okay, that's not a problem. And I said, by the way, do you have more pictures of the interior? And he said, yes, I do, because Facebook Marketplace only lets you put up a limited number of pictures. I think it's eight pictures in total. 
But in the meanwhile, I mean, I was so serious about getting this car. I had contacted several auto shipping companies who could transport the vehicle from Maryland to New Jersey because it was getting hard for me to figure out how I was going to get down there and who was going to come with me and how we were going to get two vehicles back. So I contacted this auto transport company. They said for like $129, $150, they would go get the car. I, I sent them $75 as a deposit. Then I get home. I start looking at the pictures of the interior of this car, and it's in a lot worse shape than it appeared to be on Facebook Marketplace. It, it had a lot more damage to the interior, and it just started bringing back these bad memories of what I went through with my 83 and, and the, the amount of work I had to do to get it to where it was presentable and comfortable. And meanwhile, I'm driving around in a car that at this point had just turned 80,000 miles and was in really good condition and had heated seats and a lot of other things that my old 83, the sedan that I owned, didn't have. And I was thinking, well, this station wagon's not going to have them either, right? So, and what am I going to do? Is it going to be practical for me to own two cars? That's going to be very impractical. And I was thinking this car would replace my current car, but then I started looking at the interior, pictures of the interior, and I thought, okay, I can't, I can't take this on. So I contacted the seller right away, called him, left a voicemail, and then I emailed him and I said, hey, you know, I don't think I can go through with this. And I got on the phone with him finally. He got very agitated, very upset with me, told me he let 30 potential buyers go. That one even offered him $1,000 over the asking price. By the end of the phone call, nothing had been resolved. He didn't say anything about returning my money. I, I emailed him the next day. Um, I said, hey, uh, actually, I, I emailed him twice that evening. I emailed him right around 9 o'clock. Then I emailed him again a few minutes later, and I, I offered to help him sell the vehicle on eBay, I said, I think you'll get a lot more money for it if you let people bid against each other for it. I offered to create the listing. I mean, I felt so terrible about this backing out and canceling that I was figuring I, I got to help this guy sell this car. And so in subsequent days, I called, I texted, I emailed, and he was not returning any of my contacts. He just uh, basically ghosted me. And I'm thinking, okay. I'm, I'm not getting my $1,000 back, am I? And three days later, I noticed on the listing it had been marked sold. And um, finally, five days later, October 2nd, I get him on the phone. I'm coming back from Waitstock in upstate New York, the annual Tom Waits Festival that I'm a part of. And the seller berated me at that time. He berated me for not going through this with the sale despite my explaining why I couldn't. And in an offer that he characterized as you either accept it or don't accept it because I'm finished if you don't accept it, he said, I will give you $500 back and added, if you don't want it, then just go do what you have to do. So what I had to do, because in subsequent days, despite my pleading with him by phone and text and email to discuss the return of my $1,000, there was never a reply. So... I contacted PayPal customer service, despite the fact that I knew what they were going to tell me. Forget it. You didn't use goods and services. Forget it. I tried to claw the money back that way. And when that didn't work, I decided I needed to file suit in uh, 
Kent County District Court down in Chesterton, Maryland, and I paid the fees and I filed a small claim suit and I sued this guy to get my $1,000 back. And this is the point at which I'm going to welcome our guest Ken Katkin in here and uh, have him <laughs> join in this story already in progress. Hey, hey, hey Ken, Chris. Good to talk to you hey. once more. Yeah. Yeah. And this might be the point at which you entered this whole sorry tale as well. I think I had contacted you, and I contacted the lawyers that I know personally. There was you and there was Bob Krause. And Bob really thought that, you know, you're not getting your money back. The guy's going to say deposit. He's going to invoke the word deposit. You gave me a deposit. Deposits are non-refundable. And you had a different take on it. What was your take on it? Yeah, I didn't think there's anything magic about the word uh, deposit. Now, it turned out that the judge kind of split the difference on the disagreement between uh, your friend Bob and me. But the uh, I, I didn't think a deposit means that it's refundable or non-refundable. I just didn't think it had that meaning. And to me, the significance of the deposit was that it was the way that you manifested that you were entering into an agreement to buy the car. Yeah. So I, I thought that by paying the deposit, you agreed to buy the car for the purchase price. Um, but that that didn't itself tell you anything about whether uh, the, the deposit um, would be would or wouldn't be refundable if you uh, if you didn't if you didn't go through with the purchase. Yeah, well, I did a bunch of looking online. I couldn't find anything about private vehicle sales. There's really nothing out there. It's it's it, maybe I didn't look in the right places, but what I found was a couple of things. I found uh, the Universal Commercial Code, which which a lot of states have adopted as a way to settle disputes between commercial entities and private citizens. Say, for instance, you go to an auto dealership. You put money down on a car, and then for whatever reason, you back out of the sale. Now, what do they do? They they go to the Universal Commercial Code, and they say, well, essentially, there's a formula, and this is what happens. But that didn't apply to sales between private individuals. Sales between private individuals of vehicles and many other things, it's, it's, it's largely unregulated. And then you talked a bit about the common law of contracts. Yeah, and I do just want to say, um, so that people won't think I don't know what I'm talking about, it's the Uniform Commercial Code, the, the not universal. So uniform the, the Commercial uniform. Code. But yeah, and uh, yeah, my, my thought was that um, not so much that, that a, a, a contract like this couldn't be governed by the Uniform Commercial Code, but that this one wasn't because there was never a written contract. So, so I, I thought it was possible that the uniform commercial code could apply if we were interpreting the terms of a written contract. But it, it, since it was a purely verbal contract and you, you manifested your agreement to buy the car by paying the deposit, I, I thought that all that we really had was that, um, you'd formed, you'd formed a contract to, to, to buy the car and maybe you'd breached the contract because you hadn't bought the car. Um, but that, that meant, um, we had to look at what the, the common law of contracts would would say is the uh, the remedy for the breach. You know what happens when someone breaches a contract. And uh, do you want me to go on, or do you want to? Yeah, yeah, no, I that, yeah. go on yeah. because I so, was just so, going to read exactly yeah. what you were going to say. So yeah, yeah. I'd so, rather so, hear it from so, your mouth. Right. So you know, there's different measures that can be used in the common law of contracts for for collecting damages when one party breaches a contract. But the most normal, the most common, the most everyday measure of damages that's used in ordinary cases that are not special cases 
um, is one called expectation damages, or, or sometimes called expectation interests. And the the idea is that um, if you breach the contract, then you got to put the other guy whole. And whatever damages are caused because you breached the contract, you owe him. But also, he's got a duty to minimize. They usually call that the duty to mitigate. And so in a sales contract in particular, if you contracted to buy something and then you didn't buy it, um, then he's got an obligation to try to sell it to somebody else and get the best price that he can. And then if there's any gap, then you would owe him the difference. Um, but in this case, he succeeded. Like he's just simply sold the car to someone else for the same price he was going to sell it to you. So he suffered no damages. And in fact, even though it's it's in theory, it might have been the case that maybe he had to pay for another ad or something to do that. And so that would be damages. Um, in reality, he didn't. He, j he just he just simply sold it to someone else. He never he never even claimed that he spent a nickel on his efforts to um, find someone else to sell the car to you. Yeah. So, and and uh, yeah. can I can I jump yeah. in for just a minute? Yeah, yeah, add yeah. some uh -huh. more details, because what had happened is they uh, the court had sent me a trial date. Then they kicked the can down the road a bit. We ended up, we landed on January 6th of all days. So January 6th is when we had to be uh, within a stone's throw of Washington, D.C. And I was, at first I was thinking, maybe I should change this date. Maybe this isn't a good day to go down there. And then I said, screw it, I want to get this disposed of. You know, I, I, want, to, I want to get this over with. And, and so, I mean, if you saw the work I put into this, you would hire me as a clerk. Like, if you were in private practice... You'd be like, oh, he'd make a good clerk, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I put together these documents in triplicate like you wouldn't believe. I wanted to be completely prepared when I walked into that courtroom to dismantle whatever this guy was going to say. And and the thing that you told me to say first was really brilliant. You said, do you believe when I tendered $1,000 via PayPal that by doing so I was entering into a final agreement to purchase the car from you. And you said at the time, he's going to say yes. Mm -hmm. And that's when you say, okay, so what we're really here to decide is what is the remedy for my breaching this contract that you felt that we had? And yeah. here's what the law says. The law Great. says, and please take over once more. Yeah, I, I, that, yeah, I wanted you to start with that question because the as long as you both agreed that your payment of the $1,000 uh, was was a way that you manifested your assent to a contract or a, a verbal agreement, a verbal contract that he would give you the car and you would give him the rest of the purchase price. That that's the deal. You're going to give him a total of forty five hundred, so thirty five hundred more than the thousand you already gave him. And in exchange for that, he's going to give you the car. That's the contract. Now you breached the contract. You never gave him any more money, but he never gave you the car. Um, and so, um, so the, so the contract w was, was breached and neither party carried out their obligations. And so that should mean that the only legal question is, you know, so what's the remedy? And I think in the end, the judge agreed with that, although he didn't come up with the same remedy that I would have come up with, but I think he did agree that by, you know, by your opening gambit of getting this, this guy to agree that you guys had the exact contract that you spelled out, that that meant the only question left in the case was, um, how do you measure the the damages? Now we oh. were. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know if you I mean, you can go ahead, but I was going to say, you know, there was a. You know, the, I was going to explain a little more about the reason I thought it was important for you to make that opening gambit. Well, the morning of the of the trial, uh, we 
wanted to be on the road by a particular time so we could uh-huh. be in Chestertown by noon. I couldn't get out of the house. I was so nervous. I was running back and forth to the bathroom. I, I finally get out of the house. I'm dressed in my best suit. I got my shirt with the French cuffs and the cufflinks. I am really dressed well because I, I figure that's what you do when you go to court, right? You know, I, I, I've been in court a few times. I've never been a fan of the people who wander in like slobs, you know? So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the anti-slob approach. Now, we, we drive down there in the rain. The, the weather doesn't really clear up until we hit Delaware. And then it's a short drive through Delaware into Maryland, and we're there by noon. And we go into the court courthouse, and we're invited in. The bailiff says, you know, hear ye, hear ye. Come on in if you want to wait in the courtroom. We get in there, and Judge Nunn third shows up, N-U-N-N, and tells us right away that this thing may be interrupted today's session may be interrupted because i have a bail hearing that i got to do by zoom and i'm thinking oh great we're we're gonna be here uh, we're gonna be here till four o'clock you know that's what's gonna happen um but the bail hearing even though it interrupted my my case it it was disposed of rather quickly and it was hilarious i'm so happy we were there for that because it was this arsonist who had burnt down the house that he was living in, his grandmother's house, and then wanted to go back there and live in an RV on the property. And the judge said, I don't know how the owners of the property would feel about you living on the property where you'd burned down the house. So, <laughs> I, you know, he wouldn't let the guy out of jail for that reason. And uh, so we got a little bit of entertainment. We we got a bit of a show. But, but what I did when I got up is right away, I wanted to put this guy on the stand. And the judge was like, wait a minute, don't you want to present your case? And I did. I presented my case. I read the three pages of notes that I had written, the bullet points I had set down, which I'm not going to read here, but it's exactly what Ken laid out. Essentially that, uh, yes, I agree. There was a contract. I agree. I breached the contract. We're here to discuss the remedy for that breach. And you, the seller doesn't have a legal right to decide how much his aggravation costs. And I did make a reasonable offer of $200 for his trouble. He responded with an unreasonable offer, characterized as accept it or don't accept it. And uh, basically he's looking to have some unjust enrichment, a phrase that you turned me on to. And so that's what I said. And then I asked him the questions that I had laid out, starting with the one that you had suggested. I asked him when he sold the car. He said three days later. After I had dropped out, I asked how much he sold it for. He prevaricated on this question, Ken. How do you like that one? He said, "Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember how much I sold it for. I don't recall. And then I said, well, did you get at least the $4,500 that you were seeking? And he agreed that he had. So his prevarication said to me he got more than the $4,500. Yeah, he probably got more. That's right. He so probably that's got more. more. That's even more unjust enrichment. Right. So yeah. I asked if he had any documentation of what he sold the vehicle for. He said no. I. The biggest question I asked is, are you claiming any actual losses? He said no. Right. No, I'm not claiming any actual losses. I, I You know, if he had said yes, I would have said, did you itemize your losses? How did you calculate right, right, right. your yeah. losses? This is all based on what uh, my guest Ken Katkin told me to ask in there. And I thought I did a pretty good job of, of questioning him. And then it just got weird. From there, it got weird. He got up and the first thing he said, the first thing out of his mouth was, I feel I have a legal right to keep the money. 
because there was a deposit and the judge shot that down and the judge said i'm here to decide (laughs) what happens in this case and then he put his wife or girlfriend on the stand to ask her questions about how much i was harassing him with my constant phone calls and and she veered off on this other thing she started refuting things that i had asked him and the judge put a stop to that too no 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 just answer the questions blah 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 it it just I what started, kind of th- what kind of things was she refuting? I never heard about this. She well, she was refuting. And by the way, I, I still haven't mailed a letter asking for the recording of the case, but I have to put that in the mail. And I, I'm going to be curious to see if my memory coincides with what actually happened. But in my memory, she was um, asking stuff about um, how many other people had called to potentially buy the car and how many people had dropped out, and she was basically reiterating things he had already said while trying to refute things that I had said, and the judge put a stop to that pretty quickly. He was a a very no-nonsense type of person, but what I sensed coming off of him were these waves of agitation. Like, he he thought I was in there playing lawyer, And, and one of the details I left out is when we walked into the courthouse, the guards that were by the door standing by the metal detector asked me if I was an attorney, and and I said no. And and then it, it occurred to me while I was in the courtroom, oh, this judge thinks I'm playing lawyer. You know, he thinks I'm up here playing lawyer, and maybe he's put off by that because I, I kept saying things like the remedy for this is that and so on, and I'm trying to represent myself, but he didn't seem to like it, Ken. Have you ever experienced this where the judge thinks, you know, somebody who's uh, not a legal uh, professional is, is, is somehow... Uh, getting too uh, high for their station or something—that's the feeling I got. Yeah, you know, time. I wasn't there, and I, it's so it's hard for me to comment on you know what the vibe was and and how it would compare to other vibes. I've, I've felt that I, I, I think there is always an issue in in a small claims court where most of the people are not lawyers and most of the people are trying to do their best they they can to to look up the law and figure out what the law is so that they can make the right arguments. That I think that the, um, you know, there are a lot of people who garble legal arguments it, it's hard to know the, the right way to state a legal argument it's kind of easy to get in the right ballpark and hard to state it in a, in a way that sounds right to a lawyer if you haven't been to law school and so i think that that always like um i do think a lot of the kinds of lawyers who would be working as small claims court judges kind of expect that the the litigants when they're talking about the law are going to have everything half right and half wrong yeah I, th- I think that is kind of just the attitude that they bring to something like that well, he seemed to get more and more perturbed. And then when we came back after the jail uh, bail, he- bail hearing, um, it sort of got a little more absurd uh, because – and what it well, – let me cut to the chase. Let me cut to the salmon pea chase. How about that? <laughs> and, drum roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> cutting to the chase means essentially that uh, when it came time for the judge to render his decision – I knew where it was headed, and I started to get a sinking feeling in the in the pit of my stomach. And what he did was he pulled out this big book on his desk, and he opened it up, and he started leafing through it. And it was there was a long, uncomfortable sort of period. I I I think it was almost five minutes. We sat there in silence while he went through what I figured out was the uniform commercial code. He had a copy of it on his desk and he's going through it and he's flipping pages back and forth and he's looking like 
You know that look you get when you knit your brows and you sort of look like you're you're getting a migraine? He almost looked like he was getting a migraine. And he eventually split the baby, as you said a few minutes ago, by giving this guy $500 and giving me $500. And I thought it was going to be even worse than that because initially what he said is, there's something in here about 20% of the purchase price and 20% of $4,500 is $900. And I'm I'm sitting there starting to hyperventilate. I'm like, I I went through all this trouble and I'm going to leave here with 100 bucks of my $1,000. That's ridiculous, right? But then he said, or the lesser amount of $500. And that's what he decided. And yeah. And before he issued his ruling, I said, may I speak? And he shot me down. He looked me looked at me and said, you had your opportunity to present your case. Now I'm rendering my decision. And he didn't want to hear anything more from me at that point. Because what I would have said at that point was, Your Honor, the Uniform Commercial Code, to my understanding, governs commercial transactions. And this wasn't a commercial transaction. This was a sale between private individuals. And I feel... What should apply in this case is uh, the common law of contracts. And at that point, I probably would have just pissed him off more, right? Yeah, you know, and in fact, it wouldn't have been exactly right. And that would have been mostly right, but not exactly right. And that is the kind of thing where when non-lawyers say things that's kind of right, but not exactly right, like it'll make these lawyers just not want to deal with it and not want to explain it to you. And, you know, the, the, the transaction was commercial, it doesn't matter that you're not a commercial business and the other guy's not a commercial business. It, it was a sale for money, and that's commerce. And as long as something is commerce, it can be commercial. I think the the main reason that I would have thought the U- Uniform Commercial Code wouldn't have applied was because it does have a writing requirement. And since there was no written contract here, um, it probably shouldn't have applied. But the other thing that I didn't really you know, research as deeply until after you got this verdict, because the, the thing kind of surprised me, was um, – when, when you told me how he split the baby and why and what section of the Uniform Commercial Code he looked at, um, that really made me kind of do just the thing you said he did of sitting with my book and my furrowed brow and reading it hard and trying to study it. And uh, I, I came to the conclusion that there wouldn't have been that much of a difference between the way the case would come out under the Uniform Commercial Code and the way it would come out under the common law of contracts, that it it probably should have come out the same way under under either standard. But the way it should have come out is that you should have got your whole thousand dollars back because uh, the, the expectation damages, um, putting put it, making the guy whole is the right measure of damages under both the common law of contracts and under the uniform commercial code. And, and the guy was already whole. So you didn't owe him anything. But um, the, the judge a- applied like a kind of a, you know, I talked about how in the ordinary case, um, expectations is the normal measure of damages. But there are other measures of damages that can be used in some kinds of special cases where um, it seems unjust to use the normal measure of damages. And I guess this guy relied on one of those. So instead of using expectation damages, he used restitution damages. And the idea, the idea of restitution damages was sort of like he was saying, well, if it would be if it would be unjust to let you get all your money back, because then you got away with breaching a contract and jerking this other guy around and he got nothing out of it. Um, then, then there's this other me- measure of remedies and that's called restitution damages. And that's the one where the guy gets uh, uh, up to $500 just for his trouble. And, and the guy used that measure 
But I don't think it was justified to use that measure. And, you know, I kept looking around for for cases and and Maryland courts had not um, done that in other uh, car sale cases that I found. They they had used ordinary expectation damages. So this is all a little bit technical for your audience, perhaps. But I think the bottom line is, uh, you know, you did good to go because you you know, your other lawyer friend said you'd get nothing. And in fact, you made a chump out of him because you got five hundred dollars, which was good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if perhaps if we would have anticipated all the possible things that the judge might have done and prepared for all of them, we could have prepared to head off this argument about which measure of damages to use. We, we just didn't address that. And, uh, you know, we probably could have addressed it up front if we thought it was going to be an issue. But I, I really congratulate you, Chris. It's not easy to you to go in a complicated area of law where even your lawyer, your other lawyer friend is telling you you don't have a claim and to, you know, recite a kind of a, you know, a nuanced legal argument that it re- required some strategizing and you got at least 500 bucks out of it, which is way better than nothing. And to his credit, my friend Bob uh, was very congratulatory when I called him. I, I, I thought he was going to give me grief because the guy had offered me $500 to, to settle it initially. And that's what I got. I got my court costs as well, $594. Now, that's to say that it's now two weeks later and I haven't seen a damn thing. I, I don't know when this guy is going to either mail me a check or however he might pay me. Something tells me he's not going to, and he's going to try to drag this out even further, which kind of, to my mind, was I'm thinking maybe I should. Maybe I should appeal because this guy's going to be a dick, and maybe I should appeal and try to get it all back. But when I called up the district uh, court clerk in Kent County and asked about what it takes to file an appeal, it's $195, and w- I was told that you don't get that back. So right away now, the $500 that I might also claw back, the other $500 is $300. Now you have to factor in my time and my aggravation to mount an appeal, and it suddenly starts to seem like maybe I should – cut and run at this point maybe maybe i should be done done with this thing and and in other news as they say i uh hit for six hundred dollars on the mega millions that same day (laughs) so that same day friday we came home and late at night i decided to play the mega millions and there's an app you could use on your phone and i woke up in the morning to the news that i had won six hundred dollars so i was like okay the universe has balanced this out somehow not that i believe in that stuff ken i don't believe in that stuff but how many how many lottery how many lottery tickets did you buy uh i think i played uh ten dollars worth of lottery tickets yeah that's exactly what i did i got ten dollars worth and i i had a two dollar winner on one of them nice so i got back two of my ten dollars but uh you 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 got you you really hit it big i hit it so big because if you win more than 599 dollars they have to mail you the physical ticket and you have to send that ticket or as we did drive it down to trenton and then you have to wait four to six weeks for the new jersey lottery to send you a check but the long and short of it is i got that money back so I, I feel like an appeal at this point would be gilding the lily. And there's no guarantee, Ken, that the judge that I'm going to get in the appeal is not a golfing partner of Judge the Third, and takes one look at this thing and goes, eh, he did the right thing. Eh. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, it's probably it would probably be a three-judge panel in an appeal, not just a single judge. So I think I think you would be... 
I don't think that would be as much of a problem. And and in fact, I'm sure you'd have a better brief because, you know, I've already shown you some of the cases and you'd be able to put it together. Right. Um, and this guy probably wouldn't hire a lawyer. But I think the thing that you'd be up against, and that's why it is why it's not a sure thing, is uh, that it may be something where the, the appeals court would say, well, a small claims court is um, what's sometimes called a court of equity. Uh, it's a court that's not supposed to strictly follow law, but also do justice. And that um, the law was flexible enough here that, you know, the judge probably could rightly have used expectation damages, which you wanted him to do. But he also probably, you know, could find that this is one of those exceptions where it would be more fair to use restitution damages. And the appeals court might just say that's the kind of question that's really up to the trial judge in a small claims court. And so we're not going to reverse him no matter which way he went. And yeah. I think I think that's a real risk uh, of bringing an appeal. You know, it, it, I, the only real reason to bring the appeal would be if you have fun doing it. Like if it would cause you more aggravation than enjoyment, then just Listen, don't do it. I don't I don't think the dollars and cents of it would make it worth I, it. I would have fun doing it. My wife probably wouldn't have fun watching me doing yeah. or she's, she made it clear. I'm not going back to Maryland to do this. If you, right. you know, if you do appeal, you're going back yourself. And then I started looking into, can I do it remotely? Can I do a zoom me hearing? There yeah. are ways you could do that. You can, you know, send, fill out a form and send it to the court and say, for whatever reason, I can't be there physically. And yeah. if they decide that your reason is good enough, they'll allow you to do it via zoom, especially, in our pandemic era. But part of me just says, look, this would be more time and expense and aggravation on my part. Yes, it would be fun. I would have yeah. fun doing that. And I do think that with your assistance, I could probably prevail. But ultimately, uh, you got to, at one point, you have to wash your hands of things, don't you? I mean, have you ever had to walk away from a case at some point and just say, well, this is the best we're going to do? Yeah, I, I've done that. Um, you know, I mean, if it was a case like this, you know, I mean, just because I, I am a lawyer and I kind of find these things interesting, I'd probably find it fun enough to appeal myself. But um, all right, you but, do the appeal. Yeah, 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 but, but 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 that's only because I'd find it enjoyable. Like, I think if you're just measuring it uh, by any other measure, it doesn't pay to do it. You know, Damn. And, uh, um, yeah, I, and I, I definitely have. Now, I have a case of my own going now. And well, I was going to ask that 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 now that we've disposed of the 1984 Mercedes. Let's talk about what was it? A 2010 Toyota yeah, Camry? 2010 Camry. Exactly. What uh, happened yeah. with your Camry? How long did you own the Camry? I bought it brand new in 2010. Wow. Uh, yeah, I've, I've owned that car for 13 years and for uh, 175,000 miles. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's a great car. Yeah. And, uh, and Toyotas, is, um, Toyotas will go a long way, right, if you maintain them. You can get quite a lot of mileage out of a Toyota, right? I've totally. Never, and, and in never fact, owned my, one. Yeah. And my kids, my kids drive it more than I do now, and they take good care of it. And, in fact, my, my daughter just put uh, – not even a year ago, she put a $700 set of tires on it. Mm, wow. Yeah. Well, what happened to it? What happened to the Camry? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of these stories, Chris, where like, you know those movies where like the camera pulls back and you kind of see more and more and then it makes you recontextualize what you thought you were seeing? Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, movies. that's kind of how this is. So, you know, when I tell you what happened, I guess by now I know enough I can start at the beginning, but I was really only learning it, you know, from the end backwards. But I can now say that the story truly begins back in November, um, although I didn't I didn't uh, lose the car until um, uh, last Saturday. But um, uh, this year, my son was mostly taking that car up to Chicago. So I live in Cincinnati now. We have three cars in our household. 
and my my kids have kind of you know been using this car and they traded off with each other and uh so so my son is, is going to school in chicago and he he did take the car up there and i guess um sometime in november he noticed that he lost a license plate but he um it did not actually dawn on him that it was stolen he thought it just flew off the car somewhere or something and uh uh, so he brought the car home for Thanksgiving to Cincinnati, and this was within like a a, a week or two after he um, lost the license plate. And he had it back here at my house, and I saw that. And he's like, you know, what do I do? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I, I looked it up on the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and I learned that uh, they changed the law here in Ohio since I bought the car. So when I bought that car in 2010, you needed to have a front plate and a back plate, and the car had a front plate and a back plate. But in 2019 in Ohio, they got rid of the front plate law. So you only need a back plate now. And, and lots of cars you see on the road only have a back plate. So I was kind of foolishly lax about this. And, you know, once I found that out that I wouldn't get ticketed for driving with only one plate, I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. We've still got the one plate that's legal. So we just never did anything. But, you know, what I should have been thinking about is, you know, somebody might, you know, find that plate and and put it to bad uses. And it, it does seem like that's what must have happened. You know, I don't know that. But um, anyhow, the car was here in November and December, and he just took it back to uh, Chicago again around uh, New Year's Day. And uh, last Saturday, the 14th, uh, he went to get the car. He wanted to go out and uh, he had parked it legally in a perfectly legal parking spot on the street around the corner from his house. And uh, um, it wasn't there, you know, so he called it in as a stolen car, which, you know, he lives in the south side of Chicago. There's plenty of stolen cars. And uh, the uh, the police, you know, were asking him questions about it, including the vehicle ID number and all that. But he really didn't know because all the car papers were stolen along with the car. So they said, well, you know, find out and then let us know. So he called me. That's how I found out the car was stolen. And um, Sunday, you know, I got him the, the vehicle ID number and he called the police and I checked my insurance, and even though that car is old enough that I've dropped all the collision insurance, uh, I still had, luckily, comprehensive insurance. So I was like, oh, I probably could get reimbursed for a theft. This won't be the end of the world. Um, so he had to go get the um, police report. But when he went to get the police report and he gave him the vehicle ID number and everything, they said, uh, well, your car was never stolen, so we can't give you a theft report. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? It's gone. It's taken off the street. And they said uh, – yeah, but it was impounded by another police department. They seized it. Um, and he's like, what police department? And, and the, the Chicago police said it was the Dalton, Illinois Police Department. Now, I'd never heard of Dalton, Illinois. I had to look on a map where it is. It's, uh, it is south of Chicago. It's south of the south side of Chicago, not too far out, going down the, the Dan Ryan Expressway, basically, out of Chicago. And uh, so, you know, maybe 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 10 miles or something from where, you know, he, he was living in Chicago and where the car was seized. So the, the Dalton, Illinois Police Department seized the car, put it on the law enforcement databases. And, uh, you know, so so the Chicago police were able to access that. So they said, your car's not stolen. It was seized. And he says, you know, why was it seized? And they say, well, they've, they've recorded it in the databases because it was used in a major crime. Um, and he's like, what major crime? Wow. Yeah. And they're like, uh, um, you know, it doesn't say that you got to talk to them. Mm. Uh, so, um, so, so he called the Dalton police department and they were aware that they had seized his car and they said, uh, yeah, yep. Yeah, our department seized that car. 
that case belongs to Detective Coleman. He's the only one that'll know anything about it. You got to talk to Detective Coleman. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, okay, can I talk to Detective Coleman? Uh, and, uh, um, you know, they, they said, uh, um, uh, well, he's not here right now, you know, so just keep calling, you know, so he's been calling three, four, five times a day. Um, you know, this is from Sunday till today. This is a week already. And, uh, you know, the guy just, you know, is avoiding him, like totally won't take his calls, won't return his calls. Nobody will tell him anything. Um, so, you know, only luckily because I am a lawyer, I was able to start researching like the law and this kind of thing. And uh, they call this um, civil asset forfeiture. And the idea is that if somebody uses a car to commit a, a serious crime, um, then the, the police can uh, impound the car and ultimately confiscate it. But here, you know, like they usually are supposed to use that like if they actually bust up a serious crime, you know, like someone's got the car and the police catch him in the act with the car. But here, I mean, they really there was no reason to think this car was ever used in a serious crime. And it wasn't. And we couldn't figure out why they thought it was. And, you know, it definitely wasn't. In fact, it was the car was never even in Dalton, Illinois, um, until they towed it there. And uh, uh, and then it kind of dawned on me it must be because of the lost license plate. And again, nobody told me that, but I just kind of put two and two together. Yeah, and, yeah, that's what was, I was thinking. Someone yeah, used the plate it's, it's, uh, and did a yeah. crime. Somebody probably put that plate on their car and committed a crime. Maybe if they knew they stole it off a Toyota Camry, they put it on another Toyota Camry. So I, I figure I can explain this, um, you know, if I can talk to the police or talk to the prosecutor. But so far... The police are definitely not going to talk to us, which kind of implies that they know that, you know, we didn't do it because I've never heard of a policeman who won't take a call from a suspect if they're investigating a case. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, Listen, it, this is like a Seinfeld episode. Detective Coleman's kids are driving that Toyota. Camry well, right now. yeah, in fact, that's that is it. And I, I looked up um, there was a study that was published by the ACLU of Chicago. And by wait, the way, when wait, I was did I just student, get did I just guess what what's actually going on? The guys, yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, yeah. great. I mean, when, when when I was a law student um, in Chicago back around the time you helped me move out there, uh, you know, the the, uh, the the I worked at the ACLU during during the time I was a law student, the Chicago ACLU, and much more recently, the Chicago ACLU about five years ago they published a major report on um, this this uh, uh, corrupt use of civil asset forfeiture. And they, they talked about how um, some of these um, suburban departments that are in poor suburbs that don't have any money, they they fund their whole police departments by just doing massive uh, improper overuse of civil asset forfeiture. And they mostly kind of prey on poor people and, and people who aren't very knowledgeable or sophisticated, you know, who wouldn't even be able to figure out uh, how to how to how to fight a civil asset forfeiture. And so if people don't like figure it out, don't show up for their hearings, this and that, then, uh, you know, they, 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 the, 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 they default and they lose their, they lose their vehicles. And, and these departments also, even for people like me who are vigilant and they want to show up, they're trying to just make it impossible for, for me to figure out, you know, where's the hearing, when's the hearing, what's the accusation, you know, I, I can get nothing out of them. So, um, today, uh, I, I, I gave up, you know, I, I was trying to talk to the Dalton police. I was trying to talk to the Cook County prosecutors. Nobody would talk to me about it at all. So I, I, and, and so, so literally, you know, all that's ever happened is my car disappeared off the street and the only law enforcement officers that ever said one word to me about it were the Chicago police. And they said, uh, the Dalton police took it. Um, 
But other that's it. That's the end of the line. The Dalton police never told me anything. The 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 Cook County prosecutor never told me anything. So uh, I called the court today, and I kind of um, explained my situation to a sympathetic clerk who works for the court. And uh, you know, a clerk who works for the court's not going to take a side in a matter like this. But I was I was just saying I, I just need help. Um, you know, finding out you know if my case is going to be calendared. You know, so I can find out, you know, when and where is it calendared so that I can show up and, and, and ask for my car back. And uh, um, and she, you know, was looking through the databases. And as far as she could tell, no case had been calendared, which is suspicious itself because the the law would require them to actually have the hearing within two weeks of when they seize the car. Now, here we are. One of those two weeks has gone by and they haven't even calendared the hearing yet. There's not even a, a, a case or a hearing date or anything like that, you know, and, and for a hearing that should be taking place this week. So that um, that court clerk just told me she would notify the judge about my problem. And, you know, you were talking about Zoom court. Uh, she said, I can go to the Zoom court on, on, on Monday, this Monday, um, and, uh, and the judge will be expecting me. And I, I can tell the judge what happened, even though, um, you know, that my case is not on the calendar. And then um, they'll issue an order um, to the prosecutor to put it on the calendar. So what are the odds of getting your precious 2010 Toyota Camry returned and in in the condition that it was when it was stolen by the police and possibly suing somebody as well? Yes, so I'll answer each of those separately. I'm going to say I'm pretty sure I'll get the car back. And uh, that's because I'm I'm doing everything right. Um, I would say if it was... um, you know, someone who didn't know what to do themselves and didn't didn't hire a, a lawyer to figure it out. Um, I think the odds are low that they'd get the car back. Um, and I think in that ACLU report, it says only about 20 percent of the people do get their car back. So maybe that's the real answer to your question, that when these guys use civil asset forfeiture, about 20 percent of the people whose cars are seized fight successfully and get their cars back. And about 80 percent either don't even figure out how to fight it or the court rules against them, mm. and so they lose their cars. But but I don't think that'll be me. Um, I also think uh, on the issue of what kind of condition, my guess is that it'll, it'll be in perfectly good condition. I, I don't know that, but you know, if what they're trying to do is steal cars that they can auction off to support their police precincts, then they have an incentive to um, you know try to keep the car in as good condition ah, as they can. Okay, right? it'll be harder. It'll be harder to um, auction it off if they'd messed it up really bad. You know, I don't think they're doing this out of vengeance or vindictiveness. I think it's literally a theft ring. And yeah, they're doing it for the for the money. Yeah. Um, so I'm 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 also I'm I'm op- I'm cautiously optimistic that I will get the judge to order them to give me the car back, and then I'll get the car back, and then it'll be fine. Um, but um, if the car's not fine, I'll certainly sue. And, uh, you know, if, if the car and if the car doesn't come back, you know, I'll, I'll certainly sue. Um, if the car does come back and it's fine and I, I have, you know, two weeks of aggravation, I don't know. You know, I think for the same kind of reasons I was telling you in your case, you know, that, you know, once that other guy didn't have any damages, you know, he wasn't entitled to any, you know, unjust enrichment. You know, I might apply the same kind of no harm, no foul rule to myself. I might just be satisfied to get my car back and let it go. But I'll, yeah. I'll certainly keep talking about it on um, radio shows like this and others. I was going to suggest, too, uh, maybe get this story into print somewhere. Uh, contact somebody. Uh, you said, I, I mean, could, would a Chicago paper be interested in this if you put together this story? Because I... I mean, this this is a pretty good story. The cops stole my car. Yeah, the cops so stole my car. I think they off. might. You know, there there were some articles um, uh, around the time of that ACLU report. 
there was one that was um, on uh, WBEZ, which is like the NPR station in Chicago. They, they did a big report about this. Mm. And uh, um, I could certainly contact those reporters who did that. You know, that's all like five, six years ago. But if they're still journalists and they're still in Chicago, they already have knowledge. So they might be interested in um, writing this story. Uh, you know, our, our old friend from Hudson County, uh, uh, Jim DeRogatis, was a journalist in uh, Chicago for a long time. And, mm. you know, although I think he's still a journalism professor now more than an acting journalist, I might I might run it by him. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy who brought down R. Kelly. Ah, that's true. Yeah, we saw the R. Kelly documentary. Hey, listen, we got about two minutes left on Aerial View on the HoundNYC.com. So let me remind people who Ken Katkin is again. He's a constitutional professor of uh, law. I probably put that wrong. Professor of constitutional law at Salmon P. Chase School of Law at Northern Kentucky University and also the main custodian of Trash Flow Radio, 3 p.m. Eastern Time at uh, WAIF-FM 88.3 if you're in the Cincinnati area and online at WAIF883.org. Oh, actually, I got the website change. It's WAIFradio.org. Oh, I'm on the wrong website because that's what I found when I typed in WAIF. WAIF yeah, the, the current one is WAIFradio.org. That old one's kind of just half dead. Okay. Well, I don't want to deal with the old <laughs> site, so let me yeah. fix that. And, you know, next time you're here, we got to talk about the 14th Amendment and its relation to the debt ceiling crisis because uh, we're headed – we're headed for some pain, something tells me. This current crop of uh, mouth-breathing, mouth-breathing MAGA Republicans really do, it seems to me, want to break down the world economy. So, Yeah, I think so, too. In fact, um, if I could plug one more thing, and I know you got to go, but I also do this other podcast called the Politics Guys Podcast. I did a new episode of that today, and we did talk about that subject. So if yeah. people want to hear my views on that, go over to thepoliticsguys.com. Oh, when we're done, I'll call you over the weekend, and you'll help me decide whether I take all of my money out of the stock market or not. How's that? <laughs> I'm Which, still trying to decide that myself. Yeah, yeah talk. you know, yep. I'm I'm go I'm heading into a little bit of panic mode. But let me thank you for all this. I do appreciate you doing this, Ken, and we'll talk to you soon. And uh, you take care. All right. You too, Chris. It's yep. always good, good to talk to you. Bye bye. There you go. That's another Ooh. aerial view in the bag, as they say. And we'll turn it over to Vintage Hound shows here on thehoundnyc.com. And uh, I'll see you again next week, either live or not. By the state patrol I am charged traffic of the forbidden. Way.